Yeah, I just got back from teaching a retreat. It's so nice to not have to give a talk first thing in the morning. I was like, <laughs> I can't fucking think at this time. The funny thing about being on retreat as a teacher, I've been doing this for years, but people kind of look at me like when you're the, the practitioners look at the teacher like they're some kind of priest or something. They go, oh shit, oh shit, I'm doing something wrong. And you know, half the time, you know, what they're worried about is that they're not being very mindful, or whatever. And I feel like telling them, <laughs> I'm thinking too. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> relax. I'm thinking like, when's it going to end too, just like you are. <laughs> no, it's <was> great. <laughs> no, no, it was good. I actually, I, they're good. They're good things. So I'll give a talk and. We'll have time for meditation and questions. So, the divided brain solves a very interesting problem that all animals have, which is, on the one hand, how do we have a very focused attention that allows us to manipulate objects in the world that can help us survive? And yet, at the same time, how can we be vigilant of all the threats and predators and possibilities around us? So, for example, a bird, as a famous neuropsychologist McGilchrist uses this example, of a bird, on the one hand, has to look for a seed against a, a ground filled with all these unedible objects. The bird has to be able to spot the seed and, and grab it or the berry. And it also has to be able to find a specific twig to be able to build a nest. But at the same time, while focusing on specific objects and manipulating those objects, all animals also at the same time have to have a peripheral awareness which looks out for threats in the background of our awareness. So the, the hemisphere of mammalian brains that focuses on objects is essentially a very static realm that breaks the world down into separated objects, categorizes each object as useful, unuseful, good, bad. It's the thing that labels the world. It's not surprisingly the realm of language and thought. The left hemisphere is also a very sort of dead, staticky, um, closed system of ideas and categories. The right hemisphere is a broad awareness that looks at the world without any preconceptions. It's open, sustained, it's worried about relationships, where we are spatially, how we relate to other people. It sustains our meaningful interactions with others. It sees the world as alive and complex, and it speaks to us through the body much more than it speaks to us through thoughts which is the realm of the left hemisphere. The more you listen to your thoughts, the more you will be propelled towards self-reliant, isolated, viewing yourself as alone and different from others because that's what the nature of the left hemisphere does. It classifies, it looks for distinctions, it looks for things that makes objects different. The more you feel into the body and create what's called an awareness self, rather than a, a self-concept, the more you are concerned with how you fit in with others, 
how you are connected with others, how you are bonded. So given the course of human evolution, it turns out that the corpus callosum, which is the thin thread that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, has actually gotten thinner. We have become less and less integrated as our species has developed, not more integrated. We actually now have very, very poor integration of right and left hemispheres. The right hemisphere, again, is alive, vigilant, peripheral, cares about relationships, doesn't have stories or narratives to it, is constantly focused on goals, not goals, I'm sorry, that's the left hemisphere, is focused on present time relationships. The left is focused on goals, things we need to accomplish. It worries about achieving, amassing tools, objects, and in human beings, money, rewards, etc. So it's very common as a drawback for the system where the right hemisphere becomes the, the, essentially the ancillary hemisphere, which is pushed down into um, a sort of uh, unconscious level of awareness, whereas the left hemisphere with thought and focused spotlight attention is what we are constantly aware of. It's very easy for us to develop a uh, dysregulated relationship with our own emotions. As children, before we develop a, a language skills and we become largely left hemispheric, we spend the first two years of our lives largely right hemispheric, and we feel the body sensations much stronger than we do as adults. So emotional states, which are how we connect with other people, are felt very powerfully in an infant's life. The infant feels its emotions, especially negative emotions of sadness, fear, loneliness, as catastrophic. And so when language arrives and we develop a way to repress our emotions, um, it's very welcome to us. We begin to use language as essentially a defense mechanism against the felt body which conveys all of our emotional messages to us. So all obsessive thinking, all obsessive thinking pretty much in some way, shape, or form is a defense mechanism against difficult emotions. While certainly we can be caught up in logical problems and uh, uh, caught up in interesting puzzles we want to solve or figure out, to the degree that thinking becomes obsessive, we meaning we can't turn it off, and intrusive, meaning we can't pick or choose when a thought arises. When we have obsessive, compulsive, intrusive ideations, that means it's a form of a defense mechanism. It is masking an underlying emotion that we do not want to feel. Now, very often, thoughts can repress very similar emotions to the thought. So, for instance, uh, sadness can, uh, or not sadness, worry, excuse me, worry can mask fear. Very common. That uh, we will, instead of wanting to feel vulnerable, we will instead think catastrophic thoughts. And of course, tonight's topic is resentments very often mask anger. 
Anger is an emotional energy. It's felt in the body. Resentment is a story that's left hemispheric. It's a story of mistreatment. But they are very different things. We, as human beings, tend to, the moment we start to feel angry about any experience in our life, we tend to mask that feeling with resentment. We turn the event into a story which we repeat in language and images as a way not to feel the experience of being angry. Likewise, when we're frightened, in order to not feel fear, we turn it into worry. Likewise, when people have repressed sexual uh, drives, they can instead become fixated on deflected uh, uh, obsessive thoughts which help them mask the repressed sexual energy. People will become caught up in certain binges, fixations. So when we repress the felt emotions of the right hemisphere, the embodied emotions, it's extremely damaging. The first thing that will happen is when we repress emotions which are natural and they contain very important messages, we eventually will find that they will express, repressed emotions express themselves in a dysregulated fashion. Somebody who consistently represses their frustration and anger will lash out. They'll lash out in a deflected way. They'll take it out on their dog or their child or on somebody that it doesn't in any way, shape, or form deserve to be the recipient of rage. Pent-up sexual energy very often will lead to binges and porn and, and um, compartmentalized behaviors. When sadness is repressed, it very often will then turn into depression. When people can feel their sadness in an appropriate way in situations where they're abandoned or they have losses, depression is very rarely the result of disconnections in life. It's only when depression is very likely when there's been a systemic repression of the felt experience of sadness in its natural context, when it's been activated. So there are many emotions that people tend to mask or repress because they're all unpleasant. And in childhood we don't like feeling these emotions. And in, a, and in our journey into adult life, we will systemically develop uh, thoughts that we will rely on to repress these uncomfortable, emotional, somatic, embodied states of being. And each of our emotions contains vital, vital messages that are far more important to discern and act on than generally the results of obsessive thinking, which generally leads nowhere and leads us in very poor choices. There's a whole book by a great neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, called Descartes' Error. And he basically uses the book to essentially assert that when people try to think or figure their way out of issues or problems or relational challenges in life, they tend to make exceptionally poor choices if they make any choices or take any actions. Whereas when people learn how to feel what he calls their somatic markers, that's a fancy way for saying their physical 
emotions, when they learn how to understand the messages contained in their embodied state, that's when we make wise choices that change our lives in meaningful ways. So let's look at a few. When anger, which is an emotion, arises, it's telling us we need to set boundaries in life or confront social injustice. When we repress anger, we don't confront injustice and we don't set boundaries in our life. When sadness arises, it urges us to accept attachment losses, to grieve, and then to connect with new people to give us our attachment needs. If we don't allow ourselves to feel our sadness, and instead we drink sadness away, or Netflix binge it away, then what happens is we don't grieve our losses, we don't mourn our losses, and our lives get progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. Guilt is a message that we haven't uh, taken care of an important attachment relationship, that we've prioritized uh, material, consumer, accomplishment goals over literally connecting in a safe and uh, meaningful, empathetic way with loved ones. Loneliness is a message to fucking connect with other people. If we don't feel our loneliness, our lives will get smaller and more isolated, and that's a chronic problem in our culture because, um, you know, Facebook and social media and texting gives us a replacement of meaningful, empathetic, real-time, <laughs> synchronous connection with other human beings. It, it obscures our loneliness. And so when we don't feel our loneliness and instead we text or email or put some message, post up on Facebook, or, you know, in hoping we get likes, it doesn't address the message. It obscures the message that we need to have more vital, real, authentic, disclosing, resonant relationships. So um, resentments are ways, are obsessive narratives that obscure anger very often. Sometimes they can also obscure other emotions like feelings of abandonment, feelings of loss, feelings of uh, rejection, but very often resentment is a way to mask or suppress and repress. Suppress means to push down, repress means to keep down uh, the nonverbal messages of our anger, which is, I've been mistreated, I need to set a boundary, change a relationship. If we get caught up in resentments, which is repeating the story to someone else, if I talk to X about Y and Y is not there, I am giving myself the delusion that I'm doing something about how dare you, you know, I'm giving myself the illusion that I'm taking, that I'm doing something about it. I'm not. The relationship remains exactly the same. Many, many people stay in unhappy, abusive, loveless marriages, relationships, work environments that are 
are painful because they do not know how to feel their anger, honor their anger, and take actions that transcribe the message of anger into meaningful action. If we give way to resentments, we become what's called conflict avoidant. Conflict avoidant is, means that we do not want to go through the messiness of having to tell someone, you can't treat me that way, or you're not living up to my needs, or you're not hearing what I need to feel safe. And so very often people will rely on resentments to give themselves again the feeling that they've taken an action that they've told someone that their behavior cannot be the same if you want to have a relationship with me. To set boundaries, to confront social injustice requires courage. It requires the courage to tell someone that they've not been acting in a way that makes us feel safe or makes us feel appreciated or heard. And so to it's so much easier than to develop the courage through connecting with people, developing courage in groups, um, in uh, exposure therapies, whatever, rather than doing the work of practicing until we finally can state our needs and set our boundaries. So many of us rely on resentments. We think brutal things we should say to the other person. We talk to someone else just to get the sense that we're doing something about it when we're not. Resentments keep us from developing, of course, also vital spiritual factors, not just confidence to state our needs in difficult communications. It also, of course, uh, interrupts our ability to be altruistic and empathetic the more we live in resentments towards others. So it's not surprising that virtually every single spiritual and every single religious path has this emphasis upon forgiveness. Forgiveness sounds great. Even the Buddha had a very central message about forgiveness that is repeated very often in the path. But if you listen very closely to the Buddha's message on forgiveness, it's not about letting go of anger, it's about letting go of the story, the resentment. It's not about repressing our anger or getting rid of anger, because in fact there are actually many wonderful suttas where the Buddha erupts in frustration because he hears somebody completely misquoting him on purpose, and he interrupts this, you know, this renunciate saying, you know what the Buddha said? The Buddha said, we can do it, whatever the fuck we want. And the Buddha comes in and he's like, literally, you fucking idiot, that's not what I said. And it's like, whoa, Buddha, man, you're fucking angry here. <laughs> and it's great. You know? Anyway, I think it's great. So anyway, let's listen to the Buddha. There's this key sutta where he says, he mistreated me, he robbed me, those who harbor such thoughts do not alleviate their anger. It's only by non-resentment alone that anger and hatred are appeased. So he's talking about the story, the resentment. He's not talking about the anger. 
it's very tempting to read this and believe that the Buddha is saying that anger is something we need to get rid of. But the Buddha is very clear in all the mindfulness suttas that before we need to try to remove any emotional state, we have to feel, connect, and understand the emotional state. That's the whole point of the Satipatthana, which is not to try to repress or get rid of our sadness, our anger, our fear, but is first to create a container to allow it to be experienced in a safe way where we can understand it. So spirit, to for, forgiveness is what's called a spiritual bypass if we don't take the time to connect with the anger that needs attention in us. There's a lot of spiritual figures in today's landscape that sort of also have this idea that it's easy to forgive. They sort of give these mantras that you're supposed to repeat and somehow repeating a, a cognitive mantra which is left hemispheric is supposed to alleviate a right hemispheric felt somatic message. What we need to do if we really want to forgive is first understand why we're angry, what changes we need to make in our lives to be safe, and once we address and learn how to understand the anger, then we do begin the vital process of forgiving, but only after we've understood the changes that need to be made in our lives. So many spiritual paths really have this message of anger is not safe, get rid of it at all costs, it's not good, it rocks the boat, it challenges social situations, it's, you know, it's unsafe, and that's not the case. That's not the case. We need to be able to be with, hold it, understand it. Again, if we don't learn how to be with, hold anger, it will eventually build up and turn into rage. Children who grow up in abusive situations where they're not safe to express what's happening in their childhood family, later go into schoolyards and bully other kids because all of the anger that they're not allowed to express comes flooding out on helpless victims. So the key with anger is neither to suppress nor to vent it, but to be able to create a container where we learn how to, one, be with it, relax all the resistance to it, and there's a lot of resistance to anger that gets held in the body because we've, so many of us have been conditioned not to feel anger. If you can't feel your anger, then you wind up in these abusive relationships for the rest of your life because you can't set any boundaries. That's what, that's what happens when we systemically disempower people feeling and understanding their natural anger. So the key is one, when the resentment, the story, the ongoing narrative of, of what happened, how we were mistreated, to greet it, to recognize it, to say hello to it, but then to put that, allow that to be there, but bring 
the awareness into the body and find the somatic physical expression of anger beneath the thinking. To find it in the tight jaw, the tight shoulders, the, the, the forehead that's locked, the, the, the grinding, gnashing teeth, the fists that we're not even aware that we're making. Find it in the body, not as a story, but as a physical event in the body. And instead of being frightened of our own physical emotional state, to be with it, to relax all around it. So if we're feeling this, the epicenter of our anger is in the tight jaw and the shaking and the muscles tight in the back of the neck, then relax the belly, relax beneath it, relax all the areas that are essentially um, not central to the experience so that it becomes a containable emotion that we can be with but won't be vented. Then what happens is we turn towards this state of being, this state of anger, and we literally begin to nurture it. I hear you. I won't run away from you. I won't repress you. How can I make you feel safe? How can I make you feel cared about? And I've found over the years of doing this work, not just myself, but with people, that when we stop trying to figure out the cool thing to say or, or figure out what to do or, or get caught up in resentments and we just turn towards our anger, hold it and just allow it to, to naturally, spontaneously, by free association to provide its own answers. At first, maybe the answers might be a little bit extreme, but as we listen over time, they become more and more actually very useful messages that push us towards making ourselves safe and heard and in relationships that are meaningful. Thinking will always be about just extreme statements that make ourselves feel righteous, but they don't lead to meaningful action. Being with the emotion, holding it, listening to what it activates, sometimes even I'll run images by the anger and see, does this make you feel safer? Images of different things I could do. Eventually I can use my body as a way to navigate out of difficult emotional relational experiences rather than just be caught up in the same thinking story over and over again. I can't do this because that'll happen. Finally, once we do understand what the emotion needs, then we begin the process of reflecting on the times we've been unskillful, forgiving ourselves, and then forgiving someone but only after we've taken the action. Do not try to forgive someone before you have addressed the imbalance or the, uh, un the mistreatment or the injustice in the relationship or in the social system. Because all that'll do is create frustration and disappointment. You'll become angry again because you haven't taken the actions that need to be taken. Finally, I'd like to say that even after we do all this work, which obviously takes a bit of time, uh, there's this myth today that uh, called closure. 
Anybody hear this myth? Closure? It's a nice myth. The left hemisphere loves the idea that we can do something and then all the feelings will go away. That we can have that conversation with a love, a, you know, a family member after years and years of anger and uh, not speaking or tension. And we can have that mythical, wonderful conversation and all the bad feelings will go away. We'll totally understand each other and we won't be activated again. And it's such a lovely story and it's total bullshit. Emotions are not stored in the right hemisphere the way their store ideas are stored in the left. First of all, the right hemisphere has no time stamp, and two, everything is stored by associations. So when we're grieving a loss, we can think we've grieved as much as we possibly can, and then we can stumble across a restaurant we associate with that person or that relationship, and we can feel sad all over again, no matter how much work we've put into grieving. If we're angry with someone, we can think we've forgiven them, and then they might say something years later that activates the same early feelings of mistreatment from family systems or from that relationship with that person, and we'll feel angry all over again. So the goal in life is not to get to a place where we don't feel <coughs> angry. That's a myth that's constructed by you know, gurus who want to present themselves as if they've transcended their anger, their sadness, their fear. But that's not human. Our goal, which is for me a much more worthy goal, is to learn how to listen to our emotions, feel our emotions, understand our emotions, take actions based to make those emotions feel processed and heard, and then learn to to hold them so that it's not about getting rid of any part of ourselves, it's about learning how to live with every part of ourselves, with every emotion. We don't have emotions by mistake. We have emotions because they contain vital messages to our survival and to our negotiating the complexities of human relationships. So, that's tonight's talk. Hope it was interesting. Now we're going to meditate and do the actual practice. Closing the eyes, finding a really comfortable seated position that um, feels good. And really start with balance rather than trying to force yourself into a position or a posture that looks good externally. Don't worry about how you look. Just find balance. So what is balance? It is something that feels upright. It starts either with the sit bones and moves upward where you keep the belly in line with the, uh, or the, I should say the spine in line with the, where it meets with the pelvis and then the spine remains somewhat uh, without rigidity remains upright and then it connects with the head and there's a nice alignment with the pelvis or you can work your way down from the top so align the head with the shoulders and then the shoulders with the hips whatever works if it feels good try to 
gently tilt your head a little bit back, like you're looking at a slightly tall building that keeps the head from slouching. So let's take three breaths and just really take a opportunity to relax the body. Take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift up if you like your shoulders, like you're trying to touch your ears. And just hold them up for a little while. And then breathe out through the mouth. And drop those shoulders like they each weigh a ton. Let them hang there. Don't put any effort into them anymore. Just allow them to hang. And then... Uh, Next breath, tighten the belly. And then release. And then the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face to get that nice, ugly, pinched face. Hold it, hold it, hold it, and then... So let the... Jaw drop, soften the muscles around the eyes, relax the forehead, relax the muscles connecting the back of the head to the upper neck, relaxing down those muscles to where they meet the shoulders, and then scanning the body, seeing if there's anything that you can do to adjust the uh, body in a way that is conducive to ease and comfort. Try to cultivate just a very caring, compassionate, kind attention that feels really patient and if there's any agenda you're bringing into your meditation just have that agenda to be as kind and gentle and forgiving and patient with yourself as you can be those are the qualities after all that we're trying to cultivate so start with how you relate with yourself. So just to start the meditation we're going to begin with a settling practice which is a focused attention. For those of you who've been keeping along with the neuroscience this is your left hemisphere's job. Focusing attention keeping it in awareness. So we will be settling the mind first by either keeping awareness on the breath or focusing attention on sounds and lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Or you can sustain with the Buddha called a nimitta, a very simple image, a candle, a circle filled with a color,
Or you can repeat a very, very, very simple phrase. And you could hold an image in your mind while you repeat this phrase. So you might hold an image of yourself and repeat the phrase, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Or the image of someone you care about. I love you, keep going. If you count the breaths, which is a wonderful practice, just do our normal thinking one on the in, two on the out, three on the next in-breath, four on the next exhalation. When you get to five, you can start counting back down. So four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. Trying always to keep odd numbers on the in-breath, so that you know when you're on an even number, which is an out-breath, to, if you'd like, gently extend the length of the out-breath if you need to be more relaxed. On the other hand, if you need to be more awake, focus on the odd numbers, the in-breaths, and try to make the breath one deeper and then hold it a little longer before you release it. All in all, no matter how many years you meditate, you will find that your mind will wander. And so much of the benefits of the practice is changing the way we relate to ourselves when we're learning a new skill. Simply having a practice where you greet the experience of drifting away from the present moment and winding up in a thought, greeting that with kindness, understanding, gentleness, not getting frustrated. Just that alone is transformative.
So at this point, let's allow the concentration object to gently recede from the foreground of the stage of awareness to a little bit into the backdrop, still aware of breathing or any other practice that is grounding. But now let's bring to mind at first an example of a social injustice. To bring to mind something that you've read about, a story that created a sense of outrage, a sense of unfairness, a sense of vulnerability, either for yourself or for very vulnerable populations. You shouldn't have to look too far with this current administration. Just bring up a headline or some image associated with that, and then see if you can even intensify the story just because it'll be a little bit challenging to connect with the feeling so quickly and spontaneously. So see if you can build up a little bit of unfairness, outrage, use the story to churn up. And then when you feel ready, see if you can pull your awareness down into your body and find where you feel the anger that resides beneath the outrage, the resentment, the story of unfairness. Just find that tight belly, that locked jaw, that squinched eye, that whatever it is your body is holding, see if you can find even the subtlest physical contraction and just stay there with that. Keep the story now just as an image up there in the mind, but stay down in the body feeling the anger. And just speak to it in a very, very gentle, soft, soothing, it's okay, I'm allowed to feel angry. This isn't fair. And just create a safe space, relaxing around wherever you feel the anger. So if you feel it in your stomach, relax your legs and your fists. If you feel it in your jaw, though, relax the shoulders. Just relax around it so you can be with the central sensation of anger. And then finally, you can either ask this sensation in the body, almost as if we're asking another human being, what would make you feel safe? Or alternatively, you could run by it some images of actions you could take. You could visualize protesting, 
joining a group, giving money to an organization that addresses this injustice. And just see if you can find what will make this anger feel recognized. No longer relying on stories, relying on understanding what impulses and actions we need to take. So let go of that image and now bring to mind a relationship in your life with somebody that you are connected with in a meaningful way, a relationship that has events that have been unsatisfactory, that feel unrewarding, challenging, where you haven't felt heard, taken care of, well treated. And just repeat for a moment the story. And then see if you can settle on the most activating image, the most, an image that represents the story of mistreatment. And then feel into your body again and see if you can find some clenching or tightness or heaviness or hollowness in the chest. Just some place where the feeling of anger, unfairness, woundedness, wherever it is, just find it. Even if it's a subtle expression, a subtle tightness, just be with it. And then asking this state of being what do I need to do to make you feel safe?
What do I need to say? What do I need to express? How do I need to change the dynamics of this relationship? And just see how each image you run in front of them embodied anger, how it is received. So letting go of that image and let's try a final exercise. Visualize somebody in your life who there were feelings of disappointment but you did take an action. In some way you addressed your dissatisfaction. You made a change in the relationship, the dynamic, the amount of connection so that you now feel safer, even if it means connecting with them less or limiting the topics that you discuss with them. Just visualize somebody with whom you've actually done the courageous work. And then we'll move on to the forgiveness practice. Even if you think you've forgiven them, it's worthwhile. reflecting that we too have caused harm either through our own emotional wounds or stress. We too have acted out and caused harm forgiving ourselves knowing that we are aiming to cause less harm in life. And to the degree that we forgive ourselves, then extending that forgiveness to this individual. To the degree that I can right now, I'm willing to unburden this feeling and story, this emotion and this idea. I'm willing to become present with you and drop the history. as much for my sake so that I don't have to live anymore in this as well as for the sake of the relationship. 
So dropping the image and taking a moment, bringing an image of yourself into your mind. May I be happy, peaceful. May I live with ease. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I live with ease. And then whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you and just see if you can integrate light and color into your awareness while carrying with you any feelings or uh, experiences that you want to process throughout the rest of the evening. So thank you for your practice. I hope that something in tonight's talk was informative. We have time for a few questions, and then we'll. Mm.